Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Hello, Ecclesia. Pastor Ian Graham, back with you after what seems like an eternity. And uh, it was so good to be away to celebrate the birth of our son, Silas, but also to know that you were in such capable hands. Uh, what a gift it is as a community that we have such incredible communicators, people who love this church, love Jesus and love his word, and we're able to open that up for us. So to Derek, Zechariah, and Elisa, I just can't thank you enough for your heart for this church and your insight. Uh, I really gained so much from the messages from the past several weeks, and I hope that you did too. Well, last time I was able to teach and preach here with Ecclesia, uh, I talked about just kind of a biblical trajectory of blessing. And so this week we want to enter into the antithesis of blessing. What is the opposite of blessing? And, and really in so many ways, if God's fundamental posture towards the world is blessing, then that which is anti-blessing, that which is cursed, is in a sense anti-God. Now, last, last time I taught, we used the definition of blessing that has kind of uh, carried us through this series. Blessing is the investment of words, gifts, and relationship manifested in people, provision, presence, and praise. Now, this week, we simply want to follow the antithesis of our definition to blessing. So, uh, the opposite of blessing in a short and in no uncertain ways, is a curse. And a curse is, is in a sense, the opposite of blessing, rejecting God's investment of words, God's investment of gifts and relationship, resulting in dysfunction in our life with people, dysfunction in our life with provision, dysfunction in our life with the presence of God and the presence of our neighbors, and ultimately a dysfunction in the direction of our praise, which leads to destruction. And so first this morning, we're going to look at the foundational story of cursing found in the scriptures. This story is found in Genesis chapter 3. And it's important as, to remember as we do this work, the foundational story in the library of scriptures is not found in cursing, but in blessing. In Genesis 1 and 2, the story that we started this series with, we see the blessedness of God on every single person because they are made in the image of God. The blessedness of God on work and the blessedness of God on relationships, on play, on beauty, on rest. Blessedness pervades the foundation of the scriptures. It pervades the first two chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 is structured like a poem. The first words that the man speaks in response to God's creation in Genesis 2 are a song. In Genesis 2, we see God tell the man and woman made in his image that everything that he has made is theirs that there are trees that are good for food, trees that are pleasing to the eye, that there's a world brimming with possibility, adventure, and joy. The world is founded in the eye of the scriptures, in the abundance of God's blessedness, a world built upon the firm foundations of God's blessing, teeming with potential energy. And again, this is blessedness. 
the investment of God's life with our lives through his words, his gifts, his relationship manifested in people, provision, presence, and praise. The biblical phrase for this sort of blessedness is shalom. And really, the first speech that we get in the whole Bible that is not poetry, Genesis 1 and 2, in large part, consist when people are speaking of poetry. It's only when we arrive in Genesis 3 that we get prose. Now, we turn over there now. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the serpent's temptation, his his insistence is multi-layered here, but at its heart, what the serpent is suggesting is that there is a blessedness that God is withholding from the woman and the man. A blessedness that can be achieved outside of a rightly ordered relationship with God. What the man and the woman find, however, as they give in to the serpent's temptation, is not the blessedness of freedom or self-definition, not the blessedness of being like God as the serpent promised. What they find is cursing. They find shame, blaming, the feeling of being naked and alone in the world. And as God takes his nightly stroll through the garden, expecting Adam and Eve to come running up to him and tackle him like a joyful daughter or son, happy to see their parent home from a day of work, something seems off. God asked the question, where are you? And at first, he he probably asked it in sort of a playful way. You know, sometimes kids like to play hide and seek and they'll hide waiting for their parent to find them. But then the question takes upon more urgency. Where are you? What God finds in the answer to his question is that something has fundamentally changed. Something is different. Something is broken. And the story builds to the question from the lips of the mouth of God. Did you eat from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And it's here that we have the curse the antithesis of blessing. And really, Genesis 3 only gives us a glimpse at how thoroughly this curse will pervade the world that God has made. Implications that will be drawn out throughout the rest of the narrative of Genesis and really throughout the rest of the narrative of the scriptures. But a couple of important notes that we need to to take note of here this morning from Genesis 3. First of all, God never curses Adam and Eve. Again, God's fundamental posture towards the world is blessing. He doesn't suddenly rescind this blessing in Genesis 3. However, this is the razor's edge of the choice that makes for the freedom of love that God values so highly. God grants us the freedom to choose to be in relationship with Him or not. Notice the tree that God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from was, as it says in Genesis 3, in the middle of the garden. 
at the heart of God's uh, invitation towards us, at the heart of his posture towards us, he is giving himself in endless blessing. But there is always a choice on our part. God does not impose himself upon us. Rather, his way is perpetual invitation to receive his blessing. But when we reject the gifts of that blessing, what we receive is not more blessing. We receive the shadow side of that blessing. The emptiness of trying to forge our own path. What the Bible refers to as the wrath of God. God, however, he doesn't curse Adam and Eve, but he does, however, curse the serpent. And in doing so, God curses the lie that there is a fullness or a blessing outside of right relatedness to God. You see, God also curses that which brings sin and death near. This is so important for us to remember throughout our lives. It helps us to see God more clearly and more beautifully. God does not hold hands with death. He does not make a truth with its truce with its destructive powers. God names it as an enemy of God. That which is anti-blessing is anti-God and an enemy of those made in his image. Look what it says in Genesis 3.15, speaking to the serpent, God says, He will strike your head, meaning the, the descendants of Adam and Eve. And he says to the serpent, You will strike his heel. This is so important for us. Just as a theological framework to understand that God is not negotiating with death. He overcomes death. We live currently in a war-torn world. A world where the blessedness of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth has spoken the final and full word of blessedness. It is finished. And he's spoken that over every curse. But we still, we still feel the weight of this curse. The emptiness of sickness, the, the pain and suffering and sorrow of sin and death still linger as we wait in hope for the curse to be fully and finally undone. This is a tension. It's a both and. It's a mystery, an already but not yet world that we walk in, a mysterious uh, way that we have to approach these questions that we have about God's ways in the world. But one thing is so clear. God gives no quarter, no, no holding hands with death. Even when we choose against God, He relentlessly chooses us. And just as we began talking uh, through this series about talking about blessing is our past, blessing is our present and our promise, look at the promise that awaits us. Revelation 22 verses 3 through 5, nothing accursed will be found there anymore. In Revelation 21, it talks about God wiping the tear from every eye that death will be no more. And then here in Revelation 22, he says, nothing accursed. No curse will be found in God's heavenly city, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night no more, uh, no need of light of lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Genesis 3 is, is, is framing this battle that will pervade the rest of the narratives of scriptures. And God chooses, even when we choose against him, to bring blessing upon blessing. God curses the serpent in order to say that that which is anti-blessing, that which is anti-life, is in fact anti-God. And notice, God also curses the ground. 
And as, as we have discovered so viscerally during the course of this pandemic, we are not isolated entities. You know, just this week, the New Jersey governor said that if you're traveling to New Jersey from different states, you're going to have to quarantine. We're seeing how connected our world truly is. Our lives are deeply interwoven with that of our neighbors. And not only are we interwoven with our neighbors, but we are interwoven by our shared responsibility to steward the gift of God's creation. In a sense, humankind are the leaders of the world. This is what it means to be made in God's image. We are God's vice regents. And as we see constantly in our own day, bad leadership cannot help but cause others to suffer. The name Adam comes from the Hebrew Adam, literally meaning from the ground. And Adam's forsaking of his right relationship to God by doing what God commanded him not to do is not just a forsaking of his relationship, it's a forsaking of his responsibility. The curse that is placed upon the ground is not the work of a vindictive God saying, well, now you really have blown it. Now things are going to be really hard for you just so I can teach you a lesson. Rather, it is a reflection of the weight of human responsibility to live rightly with God, not pursuing illusory blessing outside of a life with God, but to receive life from God as a gift of grace and of abundance and of provision. This is a uh, framework for anti-blessing in the Bible. Again, we will see the implications of this curse spelled out throughout the rest of the scriptures. But remember, blessing, as we've defined it, is the investment of words, gifts, and relationship manifested in people, provision, presence, and praise. Look at how God responds to Adam and Eve's betrayal. Look at how God responds even when he is rebelled against. And it says in Genesis 3, And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. You see, Adam and Eve, upon taking the fruit from the tree, had tried to cover their shame with these pitiful figs and leaves. And even as God has been chosen against, even as God has been rebelled against here in this narrative in Genesis 3, God will not leave those made in His image to their own devices. He will not leave them to try to fend for themselves. He clothes them. He provides shelter for them. In Genesis 4, Eve's first words upon the birth of her son are, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. What we find throughout this weaving and complex narrative of Genesis, is that even in this darkened world of the curse, God does not withhold His blessing, does not withhold His presence. And I want to look at a couple of ways that cursing manifests itself in our own day. The first is exactly what we see in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve tried to pursue blessedness outside of relatedness to God. And what they found was shame. For us, how often do we pursue things that we think will give us security, freedom, or fulfillment? This can be anything, really. Anything that we sort of elevate to this uh, position that it will somehow define us or will somehow fulfill us. A, a, A perfectionism that seeks to establish our own worth. A workaholism that refuses God's gifts of rest relationships that we think will complete our lives, success or notoriety that will answer the questions that we deep inside have about our own value. 
When we pursue blessing in this way, we are like those who seek the source of a dried out riverbed. There is no water at the spring, just as there is no water in the river. But the curse of idolatry is not just that instead of blessing we find emptiness. No, idolatry is about the direction of our worship, where we devote our own words, our gifts, our relationship. Just as we see with Adam and Eve, that idolatry doesn't just result in loss for them. It results in a fracturing of the very foundation of provision. Cursed is the ground because of you makes possible all sorts of injustice and scarcity. The curse of idolatry is not simply that we do not somehow reach our full potential. That's part of it. Or somehow we simply miss our identity as God's beloved children. That's also part of it. But the curse of idolatry is far more wide-reaching. The curse of idolatry is that it breeds grounds for injustice. And we see throughout Genesis... The, the, the curse doesn't only affect those who enter into its, its tangle. Uh, the, the curse also has a spiraling effect. And so the second way we see cursing manifest itself is in generational cursing. How each generation manifests this curse that Adam and Eve found in their own way. For Adam and Eve, Adam's blaming of Eve, pointing the finger at her, Within one generation, their very own son, Cain, blames Abel for his shortcomings and takes out his aggression by killing his brother. Husband blaming wife becomes brother blaming and murdering brother. And so it goes throughout Genesis. And here at Ecclesia, we've done much work with the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course. And one of the key tenets of EHS, as it's called, is going backward in order to go forward. As Pete Scazzaro says, Jesus may be in your heart, but Grandpa is in your bones. And one of the key habits of EHS is producing a genogram of your family in order to understand the patterns that you've received from your family of origin. Those patterns that may uh, renew and reproduce and influence and shape your life in the here and now. The Bible is so familiar with these patterns talking about how we are not born into a blank slate, but we receive a script that has already been ongoing. And so much of our life is shaped by these forces that precede us. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah writes about this glorious return of the people of Israel from exile. And he says, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the, Lord, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make. With the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them. The prophet Jeremiah talks about the parents eating sour grapes and the children enduring the consequences for the parents' sin. 
It's such important work for us to do as individuals, as families, uh, and, and really as a society. And I think it's particularly poignant on this weekend where we celebrate American independence. You know, I firmly believe that the ongoing struggle with racial tension and inequality in America is a result not simply of the decisions and policies of our own day, but an echo of the past. William Faulkner's famous line, the past is never dead, it's not even past, rings loudly in our own day. The founding of this country involved the systematic extermination and marginalization of the native people who called this their home. It also involved the systematic enslavement and dehumanization of the African people brought over here on boats and treated as chattel. In, the, in his book, The Christian Imagination and the Origins of Race, Willie James Jennings quotes the Portuguese historian Zurara in describing one of Portugal's early forays into chattel slavery. Zurara writes, But to increase their suffering, and he's recording this as, as this is unfolding before him, but to increase their suffering still more, those had charge of the captives began to separate one from another, and then it was needful to part fathers from sons, husbands from wives, brothers from brothers. No respect was shown to friends or relations, but each fell where his lot took him. Mothers clasped their own children in their arms and threw themselves flat on the ground, with them receiving blows with little pity for their own flesh, if only they may not be torn from their children. Ecclesia, I, I, I know and pray that none of us can read that account without horror, without a deep sense of anger and sadness, but here's the thing. That account and millions of others like it are the foundation stones of this nation that we, we celebrate this, this weekend. And through all the many years of this nation, we still have yet to collectively address to repent, especially as a church, the church was at the forefront of, of so much of the, uh, of the endorsement of this kinds of slavery. The church theologized in order to provide a rubber stamp for the, the dehumanization of, of the, the populations of uh, the, those brought over in slavery. The church has much to repent of. And ultimately, repentance leads to repair. And as a nation and as a church, we collectively have just tried to ignore it, to, to say, uh, to believe the myth that time will heal all wounds. And I think so much of our ongoing inability to move forward is because we refuse to go backward. Friends, believe me, I, I know this is true. Not a single one of us has trafficked in slavery. But I also know this, that these sorts of gaping wounds are not healed by time and much less healed by denial. Family psychologist M. Scott Peck in his book, People of the Lie, says the central defect of evil is not the sin itself, but the refusal to acknowledge it. In many ways, we are under a generational curse here in America. A curse bearing the wounds and tears of history that is unatoned for and unrepented of. And for the church, part of our beginning to move forward is willing to go backward, repenting and seeking how we might be agents of tangible restoration and repair in our present day with the, with the things that we have in our hands. 
Generational cursing manifests itself throughout the scriptures and it manifests itself in our own world, both in our individual lives and in the way we live with our closest friends and family and with our neighbors, and also on a societal and cultural level. The last way that we're going to look at today that cursing manifests itself is, is when we curse with words. In week one of this series, we looked at God's foundational blessing, how he pronounced blessing with his creative word, let there be, and it was good. And this week we've seen how in Genesis 3, the serpent objectifies God. The serpent is the first one to talk not to God, but about God. The serpent really is the first gossip. Did God really say that? This is the first speech that is not uh, addressed to someone, but is, uh, is in, rather about them. And at Ecclesia, we say it often that words create worlds, and this is attested throughout the scriptures. James, in talking about our, the power of our words, talks about the power of the tongue. He says, so also the tongue, it is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members at a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself on fire by hell. With it, the tongue, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. Now, when we think of cursing, so many of us, we grew up thinking of a list of bad words that we're not supposed to say. Now, good thing for those of us in New Jersey, that is not what God had in mind by cursing. Cursing, as we see in Genesis 3, is first objectifying others. It's allowing contempt to take root by dehumanizing another person. We curse when we talk badly about uh, another person in order to make ourselves seem greater or to feel better. We curse in the way that we say even good things. We often can curse those we know the best and love the most with the subtlest pause, the inflection of our voice, or by simply uh, neglecting to say important words that we know those close to us need to hear. We curse often by the things that we don't say. See, cursing is the opposite of blessing. It is the rejecting of God's investment of words, gifts, and relationship resulting in dysfunction in our life with people, provision, presence, and praise, which ultimately leads to destruction, not just for us, but for others. And cursing is a reality of our modern world. As much as we would try to deny it or explain it away or to say we don't believe in that kind of stuff anymore, that's kind of weird Harry Potter stuff, now, as we see, cursing is, is the antithesis of blessing. And the good news of the gospel of King Jesus is that he has overcome the curse, that it truly is finished, that even though we live in an already but not yet world, Jesus has held out his blessing towards us by the giving of his very life. And Jesus does not solve the problem of the curse as some sort of cosmic equation. As many perceive the gospel, that really bad stuff happened for a long time. And now, oh look, here comes Jesus and he has balanced the scale. Paul, in reflecting on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
Christ becomes a curse for us in order, as it says in Galatians 3, that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And if you're feeling the weight of the curse in your own life, if your life just feels uh, disoriented, it feels somewhat distorted, the curse of idolatry, the curse of generational uh, sin, both personally or corporately, the curse of curses you have uttered uh, towards others or the curses that you have endured from other people, Jesus stands before us today with blessing upon blessing, his nail-scarred hand saying, I have overcome every curse. And Jesus offers us new life, a transformed world where the curse will be no more. The reality of Revelation 22 is brought into our present day reality right now. A life with the Spirit of God, a life of blessing and renewal. Blessing is God's fundamental posture towards the world. The world was founded in blessing. You were brought forth in blessing. And though the power of the curse in all of its form seemed is so painful and is so real and so visceral, Jesus' love for us is truly enough to overcome every curse. Let us pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this love that you have uh, not only spoken over us, but embodied for us in becoming a curse for us. God, you have extended blessing to every corner of the world, to every single daughter and son made in your image. God, would you help us to identify the places that we've given root, we've given uh, a foothold to the curse in our lives. God, we, we pursue blessedness outside of a relationship with you. God, not so that you can show us how, how evil and how uh, depraved we are, but so truly you can invite us into the fullness of blessing. God, where we have made idols trying to pursue blessing outside of your provision, God, outside of giving you our hearts in worship, outside of desiring you, God, would you break those down? God, where we have uh, found that the curse is not only something uh, that we have uh, entered into, it is something that enslaves us. God, through habits, God, through addictions. God, where we feel the weight of the curse on a daily basis, where it, it, it feeds our desires, it feeds our longings. God, would you break the power of the curse right now with your blessing. God, with your all-powerful words that it is finished that nothing accursed will be found in your kingdom, God, because you have overcome the curse by becoming a curse for us. And Jesus, I pray against generational cursing. God, those patterns that we enter into unwittingly, God, would you help us to name them, to unearth them in order that we might move forward in a renewed and transformed spirit. God, both personally and corporately, and God, I pray over our nation, God, that we would do the hard and painful work of naming those curses that we have built our world upon in order that we might receive the blessing of justice, God, the blessing of renewal. Jesus, we pray your blessing. We pray your spirit, your power, God, because it is the way to blessing. And we pray all these things in your name, in the powerful and beautiful name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.